And so I'm going to give you, I don't normally do this, and I have my reasons. Uh, if you went to a movie and the director stood up at the start of the movie and said, I'm not going to tell you what the movie's about. You'd be like, well, thank you. That was kind of boring. And a lot of sermons are treated that way, where it's like, I'm not going to tell you what the thing's about, and I'm going to tell you about it. But today we're going to do that. So I just want to give you the idea behind what we're talking about today, and then we'll backtrack and unpack it. The fundamental economic principle of the kingdom of God is sacrifice. Fundamental economic principle of the kingdom of God is sacrifice. The village of Les Chambon became famous during World War II for harboring Jewish refugees. Led by a pastor named Andre Trochme, the village provided food, housing, forged identity papers, and assistance crossing into Switzerland, doing what so many others did not. They helped those in need at substantial risk to themselves. And together, the village helped more than 5,000 Jewish refugees. This village, because of their faith in Jesus, because they had been reading the Bible for generations, saw what was going on in Europe during the Vichy regime in France, saw what was going on with Hitler, and they said, this is not the way. And even if it costs us something, we have to live in a different way. Trachman gave the task to his church in a sermon. He said, to resist steadfastly with the weapons of the Spirit, this is what we are called to, to love one another, to forgive, to do good to the enemy, that is our task. But to do this without fleeing from the world, without craven submission, without cowardice, we will resist when our enemies demand from us things that our teachings forbid or that contradict the commands of the gospel. You see, when we live out this Jesus way, it will at some point come into conflict with the ways of our world. Sacrifice is the fundamental economic principle of the kingdom of God. Now, there are many parallels. Sacrifice is actually something in our culture. It's not like a, a visual that we use very often. It's not an imagery. But the idea is something that we value very highly. Right? Look at the people that we valorize, whether they be celebrities, you know, athletes, singers. Like LeBron James spends like a million dollars a year on his body. Impressive, right? And you know, I'm, I'm a LeBron fan, and me and him are about the same age, so I sort of track my athletic arc with LeBron's, which is totally reasonable. Um, minus all the God-given gifts that he has. But if you look at any story of somebody succeeding greatly or achieving something, often the story that is told is a story of sacrifice, right? A story that involves people making very hard decisions over a long course of time. And so we have this cultural sense of sacrifice. Both pursuits, whether they be the cultural narrative of sacrifice or the kingdom narrative of sacrifice that Jesus invites us to, both pursuits invite us to to, uh, maintain a life of discipline, of single-mindedness, of risk, of leveraging time, talent, and treasure. That these are the only ways to achieve greatly. But the difference, the difference is in the goal. What are we trying to achieve in our sacrifice? This is where we find these two competing, though parallel, visions of sacrifice, our culture's vision, which Alan Mann calls Project Self. You want to be your best self. You want to build a life that you are proud of. And we find that one 
On the one hand, we have Project Self, and on the other hand, we have Jesus's vision, which for today we'll call our kingdom self. Now let's look a little bit at what Project Self entails. It almost has the biblical concept of let us make a name for ourselves. So Project Self is pursuing riches, reputation, whether that be vocational, whether that be uh, online reputation, whether that be uh, popularity amongst your friend group, relationships that acknowledge our sense of of self, relationships that serve us, again, Project Self tells us that those around us should somehow bear witness to the life that we are trying to convey and portray. Responsibility for family and friends only. Now, again, all of these things, it's very important to realize, none of these things are bad in and of themselves, right? Riches, reputation, relationships. They all have this kind of arc where they could be really good. And responsibility for family and friends only sounds like, oh, that's, well, that's, that makes sense, right? But when Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? He tells a story, the story of the Good Samaritan. And he outlines this whole narrative. And then he turns the question on its head. And he asks the question to the person who asked him. He says, who was a neighbor to the man? And so what the kingdom of God is trying to do is not just simply uh, allow us to be responsible for those who are obviously in our sphere of influence, our family and our friends, but it's trying to expand our vision, trying to help us see that we are responsible for a bigger sphere than we would have immediately realized. And so the kingdom self is trying to pull us out of that. We have recreation for the flesh. Again, we'll see that the kingdom self has a view and a vision of receiving rest, true restorative rest. But oftentimes when we try to recreate, we simply do it either to escape, we do it to numb ourselves, or simply to serve what the Bible calls the flesh, those desires that we think are the truest thing about us, but don't serve who the person God is trying to make us into. And then the last one is we retreat. We retreat from the problems of the world. We run away as opposed to running towards. So this, these are some examples of Project Self. Now, our kingdom self, the story of the scriptures invite us to see that your stuff is not your own. And Paul will say, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And so our kingdom self is trying to see that everything we have has been given to us so that we might Hold on to it loosely and share it. That's something we've tried to say to our kids who are younger. Everything you have has been given to you to share. And sometimes that goes really well. (laughs) Other times not so well. And again, I can understand that. Reputation. How many of us, we just want people to think well of us. Even, friends, I have to say, as as a pastor in this area, as a Christian, I want people to think that Jesus is reasonable I want people to see that Jesus is the, like, you know, he, he makes sense of, of elements like science and philosophy, that it's all working together. But then Paul says, like, the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to this world. That there has to be that line where I'm just willing to say, this is the good news. And it's that Jesus loves you. And to, to be willing to sort of step out of my comfort zone and to put my reputation down and say, I love you enough because God loves you enough to share this with you. And that's so often the mission that he has called us to. But how many of us just want 
to, to sort of live a quiet life that conveys Jesus in very subtle ways, and hopefully somebody at some point turns to you and says, you're so different. What's that so different about you? You're like, I'm so glad you asked. But let me tell you, it rarely works that way. So often we just have to be willing to say, hey, this, this may seem weird, but I, I just feel like God is, is wanting to say something to you today. And would we be courageous? Would we be bold to share that? Relationships that serve us, that acknowledge us. The, the great theologian Henry Nouwen had this life where he lived in Harvard and Yale. He was teaching world-renowned scholars. He was doing all this work that everybody acknowledged was really important. And then he moved to a community that was designed for older individuals with mental disabilities called the Arch. And he described the struggle moving from this world where everybody saw how brilliant he was and everybody acknowledged his gifting to this world that nobody cared. Nobody cared what Henry Nouwen could do for the kingdom of God. They just wanted him to be Henri. They wanted him to be in relationship. They wanted to know him. Again, relationships that serve us, that serve our ego, that make us feel good about ourselves are awesome. We all need them. But the kingdom self is inviting us to the people that can't serve us, that we are simply there to serve. And so Jesus says, come all you who are weary. And then that question, who is my neighbor? The New Testament vision of the church is a new family from every ethnic, socioeconomic background being merged into one people. Do we allow that to be our vision or do we simply revert to the narrative of the nuclear family? Am I just responsible for my wife and my children and those immediate closest friends? Or is God inviting me to a larger sphere of responsibility? And the last thing, when our default is to retreat, to move away, and there's so much brokenness in the world, right? Like it, and now we have these devices that just constantly tell us how broken the world is. And I'm not, I'm not sure if the pace has accelerated or if we just know more. I actually don't know. But what I do know is that my temptation sometimes when I'm overwhelmed by the brokenness in the world is to simply back off and that I can't take this. And I think there's some wisdom in there. There's, there's a, again, with all this stuff, there's a line. But also, when that impulse to retreat becomes my default mode all the time, Jesus is saying, listen, you come and you follow me, you're going to be right on that edge, right between what Leslie Newbegin calls the, the, the reign of God, where the usurped dominion of the devil exists. That's where Jesus is. Jesus goes out to the broken, to the places that aren't nice and neat. And so we run to the brokenness when we receive the kingdom self that Jesus has for us. And all of this is done in our response to God and is Jesus' call to participate with him in his mission. And I just want to, as a way of reminder, Rene Padilla has a great, great definition of what it means to live on mission with him. And I think we have that slide, Andrew, although, yes, excellent. All right. Integral mission. This is, this is why we start to put down our project self and pick up the grace and the gift of kingdom self. Integral mission un understands that its goal is not to become large numerically, nor to be rich materially, nor powerful politically. Its purpose is to incarnate the values of the kingdom of God and to witness to the love and justice revealed in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit for the transformation of human life in all of its dimensions. Okay, so... 
Sacrifice is the economic principle of the kingdom of God. It is the thing we're focusing on today. So from the very beginning, it is so important that we say that the most important sacrifice that we are talking about is not your sacrifice. It is not about what you will do for God. It is about what Jesus has already done. We get to step into the reality of the sacrifice that God has already committed. We get to step into the victory that he has already won. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I love what John is doing. He's reflecting on the reality of the cross. He's echoing John 3.16 where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And he says here, he says, That we might live through him in revealing God's love for us. Jesus' sacrifice has opened up a world of new creation. A world where we can step into his mission. But it all starts with Jesus. It is not about our sacrifice. And that is so important for us to come back to again and again. It's why each week that we gather here, we come back to a table. Because it all starts with the grace of God. It all starts with Jesus meeting with us. Outside of that, we have nothing to offer to the world. There is no power. There is no grace. But when we receive what Jesus has done, we can live through him and we can reveal that to our neighbors. It always starts and comes back to the sacrifice that Jesus has already committed. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We are trying to put the steps of our lives in line with what Jesus has already done. And we try in the power of his Holy Spirit. We don't just have to try in our own strength. God has given us his very presence. God has given us that which will create peace and joy and wisdom and discernment to be able to see what God is doing in the world. And so we try to get in step with that spirit. And so Paul picks up on this arc, again, starting with Jesus' sacrifice, primary, first. And then we see, seeing that, we move into the life that God is calling us to. He says in Romans 12, verse 1, In view of God's mercy, beholding what God has done in Christ Jesus through the power of the Spirit, now we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And in trying to offer our whole, the whole of our lives and to say to God, whatever you will, whatever you want, I want you to have that. That we begin to put our lives on the altar and say, Lord, I am yours. Now, if you think about our economy, which is, a, again, talk about swirling narratives of doom and gloom. Um, our economy, great. You're like, oh, okay, I hope to come here and not think about that today. And it, it seems like the whole world is waiting for the U.S. unemployment rate to go up, for inflation to go down, and those two things, neither one seems to be happening, so here we are. Our economy runs off of zero-sum principles. 
This idea of zero sum is that there's only so much, right? There's scarcity. If you get, then I don't get. And so, the narrative that we intuit, that we receive, is you have to go and get what is yours, and you have to grab it first and primary. Again, scarcity principles. There's only so much of a pie to go around, and every little piece that's taken means there's less to go around. Again, this is our economy. But the kingdom of God runs off a principle that at first may seem like a paradox. The economic principle of the kingdom of God is sacrifice. And what this principle creates is not scarcity. You would think that in sacrificing there would actually be less. But what we find is not scarcity. What we find is abundance. We find that there is more. Throughout the scriptures, the people of God are instructed not only to look to their own interests, but to the needs of others, especially the poor and the marginalized in their midst. Deuteronomy instructs the people when they have their own farms as God is bringing them into this good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, when you settle in that land and when you harvest your crops, don't take all of it. Leave some left over for the foreigner in your midst, for the sojourner, for the wanderer, for the poor, the orphan, and the widow. Jesus' ministry is done largely among the poor, and the consistent instruction throughout the New Testament as the people are coming to grips with what it means to live in light of this new creation, this new kingdom that Jesus has brought to bear by his life, death, and resurrection. They keep being told to remember the poor. People pull their resources in Acts 2 so that there would be no needy among them. And you know what they keep finding as they respond to God's call? As they keep not looking only to their own interests? What they keep finding is that there's actually not less for them. That there's more. Jesus, when he is approached by his disciples looking at a crowd of some 5,000 people, and they say, you need to send these people away and so that they can go and eat for the day. And Jesus says, what do you have? So we only have a couple of loaves of bread and some fish. Jesus says, bring them to me. Friends, in the hands of the one who made the world, we do not live in a world of scarcity. We live in a world of abundance. And Jesus takes and he blesses and he breaks and he gives. And this is the principle that, that applies to our lives, the economic principle of the kingdom of God. And this is where I think the prosperity gospel is so close to being right. You know, the idea that if we give more, that God's going to do more. I think there's something to that. I just don't think we get a Ferrari at the end. The economic principle of the kingdom of God is that as we sacrifice, we unleash something in the heart of God. That as we live sacrificially together, something is unleashed in the economy of heaven. But it doesn't just mean that we get all that we want. What we find is that others win when we unleash that power of heaven. And we do too. But just, yeah, maybe not with a jet or a Ferrari or designer clothes. Peter, in reflecting upon a young man who comes to Jesus who has it all together, but still lacks this one thing says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, we have left all we have to follow you. And he's a little bit, he's perplexed, he's concerned that there won't be enough. And Jesus says to him, he says, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So sacrifice 
It's the economic principle of the kingdom of God, and it's frankly, it's about trust. And the question really becomes, are we going to trust God in all of his goodness, or are we going to trust ourselves to build a life for ourselves, to build a project out of ourselves that somehow provides not only sustenance and care, but meaning and joy and rest and purpose? That's a lot of work. It's exhausting. And so... As we think about mission, as we think about participating with God, I just want to invite you to four things that we we sacrifice. First of all, we sacrifice our preferences, our comfort. Again, we've already talked about reputation. We sacrifice our preferences and worship styles to be here together. And let me just say, friends, for many of you here today, you've already done that. Thank you. Thank you. Like the way that we gather, the way that we sing may not be your cup of tea, but you're here. And by being here, you bear witness to the manifold mosaic that is the kingdom of God. And so I just say thank you. If you had to come and English is your second language and you're, you're struggling to sort of track along with me, thank you. It is such an honor to have you here. If you come and you're like, they're going to sing that chorus 40 times, the answer is yes. It's kind of like the Psalms. They kind of do that. It's repetition. But if that's not for you, you want to sing hymns, I'm so grateful you're here. Truly. We need to be a people who put down our preferences and are able to gather in a room. The world, and especially the American culture right now, needs a church that is not built upon preferences. But it's built upon people who say, we are one people because of God's spirit among us. And so thank you, friends. Thank you for doing that. Paul has this incredible example of this. And, you know, for many of us, we're trying to work out where does Jesus meet us in our story? Where does he honor and validate our culture and our customs? And where is he calling us to push beyond those boundaries? We kind of have an example of this in Galatians chapter 2. Paul writes to the Galatians, he says, When Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid. Now listen, Peter, for all of his life, is a Jewish man, both prior to meeting Jesus and after. Because to be a Jewish man is to be ethnically Jewish, to be culturally Jewish. That is Peter's orienting story. But what the gospel is doing, what the the good news about Jesus is doing, is pulling him out of those cultural defaults that would separate him from other people. You see, part of what it meant to be a Jewish person in the first century was that you had certain rules and regulations around who you would meet with and who you would fellowship with. And those were meant to protect the story that they had received from God. And so Paul is saying, listen, you, it's beautiful that you are a Jewish man. You keep it going. But there's this one piece of that that is not conducive with the story as you have received it. And Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he was undermining the gospel. And so those parts of our culture we bring to bear, as Revelation says, that are gifts to the nations. We bring those. We let God honor them and bless them. But there's parts of our culture that separate us from people, whether those be preferential, whether those be stories that we have received about some imaginary other people. And Paul is saying you have to lay down your preferences, your customs in this area because it is actually undermining the truth of the gospel. 
And this is not easy, right, friends? Like I know for many of you, coming into a space, you have to sort of put on some level of, of mask. You have to say, okay, like, what does it mean for me to be me in this space? And so we put down preference. And that's all of us. The next thing that I think we're called to sacrifice is our time, our talent, and treasure. Did you know that Jesus' ministry was largely funded by a group of women, wealthy women? Have you heard that story? Luke 8. Soon afterwards, he went, soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Shusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. That's pretty amazing. Jesus is like, I'll take that Herod money. Bring it over here. We'll do something with it, right? But friends, the great stories throughout the history of the church that have been told about people living sacrificially have always involved a group of people pooling their resources and saying, no matter what it takes, we will leverage all that we have to make sure that the kingdom of God comes near in this way. The Clapham sect in 18th century Britain saw the horrors of the slave trade. Largely, these were wealthy, wealthy people. And they just said, whatever William Wilberforce and his friends, Hannah Moore, they said, whatever we have to do, whatever we have to pay, whatever it costs to end the horror of the slave trade, we are going to leverage our time, our talent, and our treasure. And these were largely people that were wealthy. They had inherited wealth. They had position. They had status. They were in the House of Lords, the House of Commons, in the uh, British Parliament. And they were using what they had in order to bring the kingdom of God near, to challenge structures and powers and principalities. But friends, the question that God is asking all of us when it comes to our time and talent and treasure is not how much do you have. It's simply what do you have? What's in your hand? When God goes to Moses and he says, you're going to go to Egypt and you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. You know what he doesn't ask him? He doesn't say, like, how much money do you have? Like, how much power do you have? He says, what's in your hand? And Moses looks in his hand and he says, well, I have a stick. God's like, I can do a lot with that. I can do a lot with some, some wood in redeeming the world. We leverage that which God has given us. We do that collectively. We do that together. And so sometimes we just simply need to take an inventory. God, what have you given me? What, what have you put in my hands? And how am I seeing it as to be used on behalf of your kingdom? All right, we sacrifice privilege. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Now Paul's going to even double down on this in Philippians chapter 2. Look what he says here. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul goes full on. He says, you want to know who the most privileged person who ever lived was? It was Jesus who was made in the image of God, who was actually like fully God. 
And through the, the, the principle of kenosis, through this idea of emptying himself, he took on the appearance of a man, fully God and fully man. He emptied himself completely of privilege. And then he says to us, your mindset and your relationships with one another should be the same. And friends, I, I think that the privilege, especially in sort of 2022 20, America, has become a, a bigger part of our cultural lexicon, right? We understand there's conversations of, of white privilege and, and specifically around that. And I just want to say, like, whatever privilege you have just because of your place in society, and in, in some places of American society, it is because of white privilege. In other smaller pockets, you may be from a different culture. You may have certain family privileges because of your birth order. You, there are all kinds of things that can feed into privilege. But what the kingdom of God is calling you to do is to leverage that and lay it down. To say, whatever gifts I have, whatever positional place I have because of where I am, I'm looking to how I leverage that. And let me just tell you, just a shorthand, the best way to begin to understand your privilege is just to listen. It's to listen. And if we're going to be a people where people are laying down their preferences, where people are laying down their customs, they're pulling their time, talent, treasure, a great place to start listening about where privilege might be impacting your life is right here. You know, and that is one of the great failures of the church over the last several years is the inability for people that sit next to each other in worship that sing to the same God to actually listen to one another. And especially over the last several years when our black brothers and sisters have been saying, this is happening. And people are like, well, is it happening? And it's like, listen. Like, why can't we just listen? Can we start there? And then can we unpack that from there? But privilege tells you you don't have to listen to the stories of other people. And Jesus calls us to have the same mindset that he had. Though he was in equality with God, laying that down, becoming like a slave. And so, friends, I invite you to investigate where might there be privilege in your life? Where might privilege touch your life? And how is God calling you to leverage it? Paul leverages his, pri his privilege as a Roman citizen. When he's being arrested, he says, actually... Uh, though I'm a Jewish man, I also have this Roman citizenship over here, and I'm going to go ahead and play that card now. And so, friends, it's not a bad thing. It's not somehow saying that you have, uh, you've done something that can't be repaired. That's all, like, we have this sort of graceless conversation around so many of these things in our culture. But it is about acknowledging these things. And until we are a people who can sacrifice our privilege, both individually and collectively, we can't participate with God in this mission. Because we have to have the mindset that Christ Jesus had. And so in our relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So we lay that down on the altar. And we find that God does so much more with it than we would do with it. The last thing that we sacrifice is our will. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as we move to the table. Friends, it is only in surrender that we become ourselves. Not asserting our own will. Again, Project Self tells us that you have to go, you have to build, you have to make a name for yourself. But it is only in surrendering to the name that Jesus has already given you. That you find the fullness of life that he has for you. Jesus comes to some Galilean fishermen and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Do you think Peter ever could have realized that in that moment, he would have his name written, not only in the Lamb's book of life, but in the history books forevermore. 
But in that simple invitation, in Peter laying down his life and his will and saying, there's something here, I've got to follow after it. Peter found not only forgiveness for himself, but life for the world. So the kingdom of God calls us to sacrifice our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Hebrew says, in a sacrifice of praise to allow God's presence to, to take over and to allow ourselves to become ourselves. Jesus says in John chapter 13, he says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground it dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Are we holding on to our life? Are we holding on to the vision of our life that we have built for ourselves, our little project self? And we're saying, God, you can't look over here so tightly. When eternity is on offer to us, when God is saying, here you go, I give you all of me. And not only that, you, in giving of yourself to me and entrusting yourself to this altar, will be a gift to the world. You will be a gift that produces life and flourishing for those around you. Or are we content with our small projects? Jesus was not foreign to this idea of dying to himself. He prayed in the garden. On the last night of his life, as he's agonizing over the the fate that awaits him over the cross, he says in Matthew 26, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Ecclesia, God has called us to his mission in the world, but we cannot do it in our own strength, and we cannot do it by our own design. And each week we come back to this table, to remember that Christ's sacrifice is primary. That's where it all starts. We receive our life from him. That Jesus, on the night that he was arrested, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. often as you eat, as often as you drink, you do so in remembrance of me. As we come to this table, we behold Jesus' sacrifice, and we make that a part of our story. And so, as we come to the table, I just want to simply offer you a couple of ways of reflection. First of all, the Holy Spirit is kind. He meets us where we are, and he says, hey, you're holding on to this, and it is not producing life in you. But if you would just let it go, if you put it on the altar, then there would be life and flourishing, not only for you, but for the world. Maybe the Holy Spirit's just trying to nudge you in that way. So just symbolically, as you come to the table, as you receive, just almost in your mind, your imagination, just put that thing down up here at the table work here. For others of you, friends, you need that first phrase in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy. I'm always aware of this, that when we're talking about mission, there's like this sense of like, 
we can take the hill, we can go for this, right? And that's absolutely the kind of mentality that God often calls us to. But there are seasons to our life, friends. And for many of us, like sometimes we're like, all right, I need that, that push to go where God is, to be with Jesus where he is, as he says in John 13. But for others of us, we need to see God's mercy in our lives. We need to taste that it is not about our doing, our sacrifice, but about Jesus' sacrifice. And so perhaps you're in a season where you're just like, I don't even know, how, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. Jesus wants to meet with you here in this place. That's part of because again, if it's God's mission, it's not just about what we do, but it's about what God has already done. And God, in enacting his mission on the cross, has pursued each and every one of us to the depths of everything we will ever go through, and he has conquered it all. And he wants to meet with you here today. And so if you're just heavy laden and burdened, then Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. So I'm going to invite you to come to the table. I'm going to pray over just a couple of moments. And we're going to sing for just a moment, and then we'll have some people up here at the end uh, that would be willing to pray with you if you would like prayer, just as a point of contact, even as a sort of a functional altar space up here, just to lay something down, just have somebody pray on your behalf. We can invite you to the table. Matt will show you where to go. Let's pray over our time approaching these elements of sacrament. Should we pray, come Holy Spirit?